What do you believe about who you are? What do you believe about who you truly are? You know, at that time of year, we're a couple years into, a couple weeks into our New Year's resolutions, right? Many people make New Year's resolutions and they can be a good thing. Um, they can help us grow in certain areas of our lives. But just, just a note that U.S. News uh, source tells us that 80% of resolutions are abandoned by the second week of February. So congratulations, you're halfway there. <laughs> I liked a, a few resolutions I saw uh, recently. Uh, the one is this, my New Year's resolution is to help all my friends gain 10 pounds so I look skinnier. Uh, my New Year's resolution uh, was to read more, so I turned on the subtitles on Netflix. <laughs> I love this one, though. On New Year's, when they drop the ball in Times Square, it kind of reminds me of what I did all year. <laughs> See, resolutions generally emerge as a result of asking the question, who do I really believe I am? Who do I believe I am? And when we take an audit of that and we don't like what we see, we get busy making resolutions to fix the problems we see. I think it's providential that this baptismal festival, the baptism of the Lord, where we celebrate early in January every year, the baptism of Jesus, it's this providential reminder as we're getting into this new year with all of our resolutions that will remind us of where we find our true identity, where we find out who we truly are. And, and just to jump to the end, it won't be found in making the right resolutions and keeping the right resolutions. As helpful as resolutions are, what matters more in our lives is the resolutions that God has made about us. Because unlike us, God keeps his resolutions. It's what God does in and through us. And for our purposes today, specifically in baptism, that we are reminded at the core of who we truly are. See, this baptismal festival, we, we look here in Matthew chapter three. If you turn there with me in your own Bibles, pew Bibles on your phones, Matthew three, verse 13, just five verses describing the baptism of Jesus. And yet in this, we are actually being given a picture of what happened in your baptism and in mine. We're given a picture, in fact, of what just happened at the font a few moments ago. And you may say, no, no, this is Jesus' story. This isn't about our baptisms. But, but you got to ask yourself, why did Jesus get baptized? Like, for what reason did Jesus get baptized? If baptism is a washing of sins, if baptism is a transformation of a dark, broken human being into a person that shines like light in the world, then why does Jesus need to be baptized? If, if it's true of what the New Testament says about Jesus, Hebrews 4.15 says that he was like us in every way, yet without sin. Why did Jesus get baptized? And this is exactly what's going through John the Baptist's mind. Look with me at verse 14. 
When Jesus arrives at the Jordan, John the Baptist says to him in verse 14 that he would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, you're right, John. I don't need your baptism in the way that everyone else needs your baptism. I don't need my sins to be washed away because I am the eternal son of God. But let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. And what that means ultimately is let's do this for the sake of the gospel so that you and I will understand what really happens in baptism quietly, secretly, sacramentally, below the surface. We see see the water. We hear the words. But Jesus' own baptism here in Matthew 3, these five verses, tells us Here's what's really going on beneath the surface in every baptism. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Paul, reflecting on all this, says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, that if you're baptized into Jesus' baptism, you have put on Jesus. That he stands in solidarity with you. That which is true of Jesus suddenly becomes true of us who have gone through the same water. Do you follow me? Because if this is the case, then all of a sudden, baptism gives us a very different answer than our typical self-assessment when I ask, who do I believe that I truly am? When I answer that question, I come up with a long list of successes and an even longer list of failures. But when I ask it through the eyes of faith with baptism, suddenly the answer I get is this. Who are you really? You are adopted. You are adored. And you, if you can believe it, are approved by God. All of that is contained in the waters of baptism. All of that is contained just in verse 17. See, first we see that in our baptism, standing with Jesus in his, that we are adopted. And adopted is a key word. See, verse 17 here, the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my son. And it's really important that we get this adoption language down. Because it's biblically vital, it's transformative, it changes the whole way we think about being sons and daughters of God. I'll put it like this. We often ask people this quiz. Okay, here's the quiz. Here's your Bible quiz. Ready? Coffee is set in. Here's your Bible quiz this morning. Think in terms of Genesis. How does a person become a child of God? Now, people give all kinds of answers. Here's one that typically comes up even in churches. The answer, how do you become a child of God? They'll say, well, you're born as a child. You're created. We're all made children of God, right? It sounds really inviting. We're all children of God, right? We're all God's children, all people. It's not biblical. See, what Genesis tells us is that verse 26 of chapter one, that we're made in the image of God. Every human being 
has unique value and dignity because we're made in the image of God, yet we're fallen image bearers according to Genesis chapter three. We've broken the image that God has made us in, right? He's made us like himself, but we've broken that image. But it says nothing about being his children. No, suddenly we realize when we read Galatians chapter four, how we become children of God. How does a fallen image bearer become a child? Not because they're born as a child, but because they're born again. Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, Galatians chapter four, verse four, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and of a son than an heir through God. Sons and daughters of God by adoption. And here's why it's so important we understand adoption. Because it implies that God made a choice about us. That a decision was made. Growing up in my family, there's three boys. We got all girls. Monica and I got all girls. So it was a brand new enterprise when the girls came along. Because I grew up, family of three boys. I'm the eldest my second oldest brother, biological, my third, my third brother is adopted. And I know in some families, people struggle with being adopted because they say sometimes it can feel in their own hearts like they're kind of second-class sons. It was not so in our family. I don't know, through my parents, where they just loved on Phil and the rest, Philip, my adopted brother, grew up kind of like he was the first-class son and my biological brother and I were the second-class sons because Philip would regularly say to us, mom and dad chose me and they got stuck with y'all. <laughs> now, he never says y'all because he's Canadian, but I got to translate these jokes for you. But the truth is, the truth is that adoption means a choice. That God looked on us broken fallible failures as we are and shows us. And I mean, I sometimes, if you're honest, you may be thinking, maybe like, did I accidentally get through the screening process? Like if I'm an adopted son or daughter of God, like did somehow I get past that TSA line screening? Because clearly they would let me in. He wouldn't choose me with all my brokenness and all my failings. But that's just the gospel. That God chooses the broken and the needy and the sinful and even, yes, the evil to be those who will bear his glorious transformation of becoming sons and daughters because he chooses. His divine choice. As John 15, 16 says, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God knew what he was doing when he chose you for adoption. When he chose you to go through those waters of adoption. But see, not only does baptism declare that we're adopted, but also that we're adored, that we're loved. Verse 17 goes on to say, not only this is my son, but he says, God says, my beloved, the one I love, even with our great flaws, even with our deep brokenness, that he could call us his beloved. 
I don't know if you watched the Golden Globes this week. I, I generally hate those kind of shows simply because they get so political. But Ricky Gervais, who has a tendency to sort of attack everybody, and he's pretty vulgar, um, but he actually, as the host this year, decided to rip into the Hollywood elite, which was awesome. And, and, and he said this. It was this great moment in the Golden Globes where he actually said this at the beginning of the award ceremony. He said, he said, so if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a platform to make a political speech. You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. And I heard that and I said, finally, yes, I loved it. And I was, as I was sitting there in my joy at these Hollywood elite being ripped apart on the stage and watching Tom Hanks look like, really, are you talking about me? I immediately thought, am I any better than them? I mean, really, am I any better than them? Deeply broken, deeply flawed, every single one of us. And the truth is that God comes by his own sovereign choice to adopt us and call us beloved. As C.S. Lewis says, God does not love us because we're lovable, but because he is love. As Romans 5, 8, giving a picture of the kind of love that he pours on us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us. Or you could read it this way. God demonstrates the kind of love, the quality of love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Loved us in our brokenness. Loved us in our sin. Loved us in our ugliness. Loved us. As Tim Keller says, you're more sinful. This is the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever imagined. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Baptism declares this. You're adopted by God's choice. You are adored. But as crazy as it sounds, even greater than all this, even more surprising than all this, baptism declares that you and I are approved by God. Acceptable before God. Verse 17 goes on to say, with whom I'm well pleased. Which means that God looks down on Jesus. And of course you say with Jesus, that makes sense. It's Jesus. He looks down and goes, with you, my son, I'm well pleased. I go, of course he's well pleased with Jesus. But if this is true and baptism for Jesus is the same as baptism for me, then this means that God looks down on me in my fallenness, in my brokenness and says, with you, I'm well pleased. And at that point I say, okay, we must be reading this wrong. Well pleased? Me? It can't be right. We know how broken we are. We know how much we fall short. It's interesting, when I first became a Christian when I was 17, I really believed that inside churches, the churches were full of like perfect people or probably more accurately, I thought people inside churches think they're perfect. 
right? That they're going to sort of tell the world, you know what's wrong with you, but we've got it all together. And then I joined the church and realized, wow, you're all more messed up than I am. This is great. (laughs) Equally messed up. But the point is this. We often forget just how much God comes into a broken life and how much that is the arena where God is constantly working. So when he brings a person through the waters of baptism, and if it means that they're accepted, it means that he's talking to a person who is going to be broken, who is going to sin, who's going to fall short. So you say, what gives? It's like the four men who are in a fellowship group. They're getting really honest with each other. They're getting really real. We're going to stop studying scripture only, and we're going to start confessing to each other our deepest sins. Well, the first man says, all right, I'll admit, I'll confess. My weakness is stealing. I just just can't keep my hands off things that I want. And the second man says, well, my weakness is alcohol. I just, if I have a drop, you know, it's off to the races. The third man says, you know, my weakness is women. I just can't keep my eyes to myself. And the fourth man says, well, brothers, thank you for being so honest. I'll share with you, my weakness is gossip. And I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) This is the community that we're in. This is the brokenness of which Jesus comes into with not only this word of adoption and adoration, but approval, acceptance, to be told, well done. How could it be? Well, it's all because we're standing in Jesus' baptism. I mean, Martin Luther, who was, you know, I think of all the reformers, really understood how much of a deep, great sinner he was, right? This is the man upon his deathbed said, you know, his final words, we are beggars all, right? Understood the deep weight of sin, even within the life of a redeemed person. But here's the reality. Every time Luther felt himself being condemned by Satan, standing in condemnation under his brokenness, under his sin, he would yell at Satan and he would declare with these words, I have been baptized. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, that this baptism that we have entered into with Christ is not just through the waters, but it is in fact all the way through Jesus' own death and resurrection. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, as he's on the way to Jerusalem, he says to his disciples, I have a greater baptism to undergo. And I am torn up inside until it's completed. And the baptism he's talking about is his death and resurrection bearing your sins and my sins in his body, dying the death we should have died, standing in solidarity with his people, but then rising gloriously from the grave. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death, literally the image of drowning in the waters, baptized into his death, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
This is why Paul culminates the whole of the gospel in Romans 8, verse 1. To a people who are constantly, I pray, constantly self-aware enough to know that we are sinners saved by grace, Paul declares this over the church. Romans 8, verse 1. Because of all that Jesus has done, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what approval means. That we do not stand under the guilt and shame and sense of impossibility of living the new life in Christ every time we sin. No, we sin and we stand in the same place, standing forgiven. My standing and your standing before God is not based on my own ability or your own ability to manage the turbulent waters of this troublesome life as the baptismal liturgy has said a moment ago. Our standing before God is not based on our ability to manage the troublesome waters, the turbulent waters of this troublesome life. Our standing is based only on the waters that Jesus has brought us through in baptism. That's the gospel. That's what we are to believe about ourselves. Approved. Approved because of his completed work. You know, it's funny, every time I do a baptism, I get soaked. Like, I'm right now, like, yeah, that could really, this could make at least a glass of water. Like, I am soaked right now. And it's awesome. Because it's an image for all of us. I love our rock, right? Our baptismal font. I think it's the best in the world. It's a Sea of Galilee rock right? That's from the Sea of Galilee. The water flows through it over and onto the floor. But as a result, when you're the celebrant and you get by it, you're going to get wet and close up with that baptismal font. And I get soaked. But here's the image for you and I today. That's exactly the image of what it is for the people of God to come into church every week. Get wet. Touch the water of baptism. Be soaked in the water of baptism. Remind yourself of the declaration and the truth that has been made about you through your water of baptism. Because as you go through this life, you are going to come into this building many weeks and feel that you are the most deflated, worst Christian in the room. And there'll be other weeks where you'll think you're the best. And equally so, you're wrong in both cases. But regardless of how you come in this room, what your weak has been, whether you're strong or weak, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you feel you've done well this week, or whether you feel an utter failure, you come by that font and you touch those waters. And if you're willing, you cross yourself or at least put it somewhere on your head and believe again what God has made true in you. What do you believe about yourself. What do you believe about who you are? Look to the waters of baptism and believe. And as you believe, O oh Christian, without burden, without guilt, without condemnation, go out into this world, O oh Christian, and live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.